0: On a hill overlooking Chino, the team of a multiple homicide. We have four fatal victims. One victim approximately eight years of age. The eyes are open, however, there is no response.
1: Nothing bad hardly ever happens in a small town, especially one like Chino Hills, California. The date is June 5th of 1983. William Hughes peers through a sliding glass door into the bedroom of the Ryan family's house in Chino Hills. There he spots the bloody corpses of his 11-year-old son Christopher, along with the bodies of Doug, Peggy, and their daughter, Jessica, age 10, hacked to death. However, miraculously, their son Josh Ryan is still breathing and clinging on to life. But who would commit such a horrible act of violence? Fingers were pointed at an escapee convict, Kevin Cooper, while other rumors flew around town that it was an inside job committed by more than one person. But why the Ryan family? Was it a robbery gone wrong? Or was it a debt that needed to be collected? Or is it a deeper and darker secret that lies within the hills of that community? The paranormal aftermath, Was there an imprint or a residue left behind the night of June 4th of 1983 that still resides on the Ryans' property? Could it be the spirits of young Jessica Ryan and Christopher Hughes that residents have seen and felt on English Road? This is the true crime and paranormal aftermath of the Ryan family murders. So join us as Holly Weird Paranormal travels back in time to 1983 except that we're not going to hollywood we're traveling to chino hills Side note, the following episode contains violent and graphic content. Listener discretion advised. Now, let's get Holly weird. Close your eyes and imagine a room. There's a secret door. A staircase that descends into darkness. A room filled with terrible wonders. It is a library of mysteries. A catalog of terrors. Join us bi-weekly down the hidden staircase. For stories and cases you probably haven't heard of, you can find The Hidden Staircase on iTunes, Spotify, or any podcatcher. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. Hey guys. Oh, hello. Hello there. I didn't see you there. I did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tammy sees dead people.
1: I, <laughs> yes, didn't you see the Instagram girl? Yes, girl, girl
2: shooketh. Uh.
1: I, yes, very shooketh. So, guys, if you're not following us on Instagram, how dare you? Then you're missing out on a
2: lot. <laughs> yes.
1: Bryce will stalk you and many ways. Yes, you're (laughs) welcome. So, um, yeah. follows followers, like, drop. Drop. All of of a sudden we lost 500 followers. Sorry,
2: friends, I won't stalk you probably.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, I caught a reflection of a guy on my lenses of my sunglasses.
2: Yeah, that seems fine. <laughs> oh, you should also burn those sunglasses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and my husband's artwork, no. too. Remember oh, when I, know, I posted I know, that? Oh, I know. So long story short, guys, I went to go pick up a machine at an old store in Burbank, and I worked with the store for many years, and um, I was sitting in the car, in my car, waiting for traffic to lighten down, and I do these little videos that you've seen on Instagram and I usually send them to my friends mm-hmm. and they do the same thing. And in the reflection of my glasses in this video, you could see the face of a man. And mind you, no one was standing anywhere near my car. Ew. Posted on Instagram, asked the people in the paranormal community like, what is this? What is es esto? Like, yeah. what is this? And the next day I was doing errands in Hollywood and Something just told me just to call, just call the shop and just ask him questions. So I called, I asked him a lot of questions. I had a lot of things and they confirmed everything. They're like, yeah, we have some paranormal activity. Um, It actually is due to the fact that we had a worker here who passed away several years ago on his way to work. And in the afterlife, he came to work and he never left. Oh my God. Yes. So... I will be doing a little project with a YouTuber, and we're going to be sharing more of the story so we could share it with our followers and with all of you guys. And we are going to do another interview with the shop owner and the manager that I spoke to because when I showed them the video and the still shot of the Mm -hmm. man's face, they like 100% clarified and stated that that was Frank, the man who... Had passed away that worked in their shop and Frank, uh,
2: Frank, just go.
1: I know Francisco, but better why you know? Oh God! So yeah,
2: good for you because I would burn those sunglasses. (laughs)
1: That's my husband said the same
2: thing too. (laughs) Maybe the car, I don't know. Stop!
1: Like let's see how safe we
2: can get. Maybe the whole shop.
1: Don't go with Hyundai, Tammy. Go buy a Honda or something. I don't know. I love it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's pretty quite quite interesting so damn i see dead people and not to mention we posted another picture Mm -hmm. so my husband a year ago did this beautiful artwork of me and bryce with the city skyline in our Mm -hmm. background and we were wearing glasses and in the reflection of the glasses you could see the faces of dead people Mm -hmm. what a winky bink
2: i didn't realize that your husband was a clairvoyant
1: Exactly. Even though he doesn't believe in all this stuff,
2: it's always yep. <laughs> it's always funny to me when people say, as someone who also is like more towards that side, exactly. Then you'll start sort of ice pick chipping away at that, and you'll be like, "Well, have you ever experienced anything?" And they'll be like, "Well, yeah, I can't explain." And then they'll start talking, and you're like, "Oh, so you're possessed by a demon?" Like, <laughs> You're full in. Like, both feet are yes. in the pool. You're just ignoring. Yes. I do it, too. We're all like, something will happen, and I'll just be like, oh, that was weird. I'm like, yeah, open up even just, like, a little bit, and you can, like, probably find an explanation for it. Uh-huh. But people who, like, quote, don't believe or whatever it may be, most of the time have some experience, and you're like, wait, right, oh, how do you 100%. Not? And that's coming from me, who is, like, a full-on skeptic. Uh-huh. So, like yeah, Charlie's what is another
1: example, too, from our um, Mm -hmm. haunted apartments episode. He had that experience in Mm -hmm. his ex-girlfriend's haunted apartment. He was levitated and still doesn't believe. Went to the Whaley house with me, had things like happen in Mm -hmm. front of him. He was pointing things out to me and he still doesn't believe. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when I tell people I'm really into the paranormal and they're like, oh, yeah, I really don't care what you think. I am who I am. Fuck off. Um, mm-hmm. But then they are like, so I have a story. Yes, yeah, see? <laughs> see? Yeah,
2: it always is like that.
1: Click, click, open up the suitcase. But also,
2: look, I told Tammy <laughs> before we started recording, <laughs> just buckle up, friends, because I'm just, I have like the rants lined up like little bandoleros on my chest. Like, mm-hmm. I have a lot to say about this episode. But oh, yes, guys. Let's just start on this unplanned one. Yeah. Uh. It's so annoying to me that it's 2019 and people still give each other shit for being excited about things. Mm-hmm. It drives me insane. Like I hate watching <laughs> people like get excited and say like, "Oh, I'm really into this thing," and then like they kind of self correct or like censor themselves or other people censor them and they're like, "That's stupid" or "That's lame." Like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: ugh. Gross. Give a good example. We're Give a not, good example. I, honestly literally anything. Like I wish I had a really good example, like right off the top of my head. But just like that exact thing what that you're saying of just like, well, I'm into the paranormal and then like that judgment of like, oh wow, you are like oh I'm sorry. Like, like fuck off. Like, like
1: gluten. All of a sudden, like, oh, I don't eat gluten. Do you know what gluten is? No, but yeah. it's bad. You can hold up a convenience store mm. in Los Angeles with a bagel because people true. are So afraid of gluten. Yeah. Just saying.
2: (laughs) But that is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a very random tangent. But it just like, it really bothers me. Like, let people enjoy things. Yeah. Like, who the fuck cares? Let me
1: enjoy my bagel.
2: And (laughs) as someone who tried to be cool for like a solid three years when I first moved out here, it's exhausting. It
1: really is. You don't get to
2: care about things. Mm -mm. Everything's beneath you. You're just kind of like floating around trying to be, quote, cool. And it's fucking exhausting. I would much rather do things that are traditionally not cool but uh-huh. i actually give a fuck about uh-huh
1: i like to be tan and enjoy a, a good burrito yeah i like to eat and i know that there's this like thing here where it's like oh there's a lot of pretty people that are starving themselves i'm like mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well
2: yeah so i don't know anyway <laughs> uh I, I, yeah. you get to like the paranormal exactly how dare they
1: mm-hmm well guys you're tuning into this episode because we are going to be talking about a little sleepy hamlet town known as chino hills california so we are going to be talking about a really big case that is pretty relevant to this very day Mm. and this is called the ryan's murder case aka the chino hills massacre Mm. i know this is a very 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 intense case Mm -hmm. so there are going to be a lot of things that we're going to be covering it's going to be a bit of a long episode but i promise you guys it's going to be a good episode so we will jump into the details the story the history Mm -hmm. and bryce will take us to church with one of the men that is convicted and responsible supposedly Mm
0: -hmm. responsible
1: for the murder and the slaying of the ryan family yes and we also have a paranormal aftermath associated to the location where the slayings happened insane and then we also had a listener that submitted some other legends and lores connected to chino hills Mm -hmm. that we're definitely going to touch on in this episode because we can't do the true crime without the booze guys yes but first off, I want everyone to know that this is going to be a bit of a graphic um, mm. episode. We're going to talk about a lot of graphic content because it's going to get real. Um, we're also going to first off do a little preface. I walked into this case. Um, oh my god! I
2: thought you were going to say I walked into this house, and I was like, "Whoa!"
1: <laughs> I wa- well, no, nah, I walked into this case from a neutral standpoint. Mm. I'm not saying, you know, you know, the people that were involved and were convicted were guilty or not guilty. I just wanted to have an open mind. And after researching it, I have a lot of things I have to say as well as Bryce, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, guys, let's jump into this case. Now, I heard about this case through the story of the Cooper house in Chino Hills. So it started for uh, with me. It started with a ghost story.
2: Interesting.
1: And then I learned about the case. So. A coworker of mine years ago told me about this this house in Chino Hills because she's from Chino Hills. And she told me a lot about the legends and lures connected to it. Wow. And then I researched the crime attached to it. And I was like, holy shit, this is huge. Yeah. Now, in regards to Richard Ramirez's case, the 80s was the decade that changed Los Angeles. Yes. Exactly. And it was the decade that... Serial killers and mass murders peaked, you know, Mm -hmm. so get ready guys, you know how we do in order to begin, we need to go all the way back. We need to go back to June of 1983 Mm -hmm. and the setting is not in Hollywood and it's not in LA. It's in Chino Hills, California. Mm-hmm. So for our non-California listeners, Chino Hills is a city located in the southwestern corner of San Bernardino County, California. The city borders Los Angeles County on its northwest side, just 40 miles out. Chino Hills is considered to be a very safe town, a good place to raise your family, mm-hmm. and, you know, to have a farm or a vineyard or several.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: according to the FBI in 2016, it ranked number 4 as one of the safest cities to live in in the US, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Now, we begin our story with a family, but we begin the story with two individuals, Peggy Howell and Doug Ryan. So, they were a couple. They met each other at an alumni party in Des Moines, Iowa. In 1970, they got hitched. Mm -hmm. Doug was a former Marine, military police, and farmer. Peggy was a chiropractor like her mother, Mary, and she also had this amazing fascination with horses. They end up moving to Olympia, Washington to open up a clinic and then they sell the clinic to move to Santa Ana, California, where Peggy opens another clinic with Doug and Doug is helping her run this clinic. Mm -hmm. There the couple end up training horses. So they decide to train horses as a hobby Mm -hmm. and soon, (laughs) just as a hobby, you know. That is some
2: white bullshit. (laughs) Like as soon as I was watching. White people. Like as I was watching the (laughs) The one documentary, right? Where, like, they raised like Arabian Radiant horses. horses. Like, that is code for they were white. Like, <laughs> at, like as a white person, they I were white worked, and they had money. I worked on a horse farm growing up. Like, we love horses. I don't know what it is. We are really basic about it. <laughs> well, that's it. what
1: what happened with pug uh, with pug with Peggy and Doug. If they had a like a like one of those like you know hybrid names, it would be pug. I guess.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll buy it. I
1: yeah. Right. So. Peggy grew up with horses and so did Doug so I guess one day they woke up and they're like let's train horses in yeah. our little residential area so they buy two Arabian horses and then they buy three more horses so they keep the horses in their backyard and their neighbors were like not fans of this at all sure they're like um, timeout this is not the place to do it so um, after buying five Arabian horses peggy and doug were like okay we're a little bit um depleted of our finances so we're gonna have to move and our neighbors loki do not like us because mm-hmm. of this and they are complaining so at the time they had a little girl by the name of jessica their daughter oh. and she is age two and they look into chino hills because mm-hmm. at the time chino hills was sprawling it was Like a vast land to actually open up farms, to open up branches, to have a vineyard. So they sell their house in Santa Ana. They take their five Arabian horses, they pack up and they go to Chino Hills. They buy a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house house beautiful modern ranch style house with cathedral windows and we have the house posted on mm, our Instagram yes. just so you could, guys can take a good look at it. So the house out on five on a five acre property with a hilltop ranch, which is really cute. Mm-hmm. So Peggy and Doug expand their family so they ended up having a little boy named Josh. And according to their neighbors in the community, they were pretty much a happy normal family. They were hardworking, they're close knit, there's nothing sketchy about Mm. them they were just your average family so on the night of june 4th 1983 christopher hughes a friend of the children spent the night and they had just spent the entire day on that saturday having fun at a huge potluck and barbecue um it was at the house of george and valerie blade now the barbecue and potluck was kind of like a gathering for all local ranch owners and their families Mm. to mix and mingle so the family's there the ryan family is there Until 9 o'clock at night, they go home with little Christopher Hughes in tow because Josh and Jessica really wanted Christopher to sleep over. So they get to the house by 9.30 p.m. And unfortunately, this is the last day that the Ryans and Christopher Hughes were seen alive. Uh. So marianne hughes the mom of christopher hughes tries calling the ryan's residents only to be greeted by constant busy signals and by 11 a.m she drove the short distance to the ryan's house because they didn't live that far from them so she goes to the front door she knocks on the door there's no answer so she tries to open the door and she finds it to be locked so she walks around the west side of the house mm. and looked into the children's bedroom but could not see a single person or hear anyone, you know, walking mm-hmm. around the house. So she called out several names to, you know, Peggy and Doug, but got no response. And she noticed that the Ryans' station wagon was gone and then drove back home to ask her husband to go take another look later on. So Bill Hughes goes into his car, he drives down the street, arrives to the house, and he went around the house to peer through a sliding glass door into the Ryans' mm-hmm. master bedroom. And he could not at first believe what he was seeing. He sees nothing but red. Mm. The whole interior of the master bedroom is completely red. And according to Bill, it was a very bloody scene. And my first recollection was that this can't be blood. This is paint, makeup. I thought, what kind of crazy game is this? So... Guys, this is where it gets a little graphic. So if you want a time jump, you can, but this is the reality of the case. Peggy Ryan was laying on her back naked in the middle of the room, and Doug Ryan, also nude, was kneeling over the edge of the bed. Both were completely covered in blood. Not far from Mrs. Ryan's um, was Chris Hughes' who was lying on his stomach, and Josh drenched in blood and curled up in a fetal position, and he was near him. So Josh Mm. was moving, but his eyes were glazed, and the left side of his head was gashed up. So Josh had been left for dead with his throat slit from ear to ear, a hatchet blow to his head that fractured his skull, several stab wounds to his back that broke three of his ribs, and he had collapsed one lung Mm. and a broken collarbone to top it off. And he also had a nearly severed left ear. He had survived by keeping his fingers pressed to his throat to staunch the bleeding and then going into shock for 11 hours until help arrived.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: I know. but He makes it. Yeah. So Hughes tried to enter through the glass door but couldn't budget. The door was unlocked. Keep that highlighted. But in his panic, he was tugging it the wrong way. He yelled to Josh to open it, but Josh tried to move and couldn't. So Hughes ran around to the other side of the house and kicked in the kitchen door. In the kitchen were the Ryans' Irish setter, their golden retriever, and three kittens playing on the floor. And Bill's like, what the fuck, dude? This is strange. So... He approaches the master bedroom, but upon his arrival, he is greeted by the lacerated body of Jessica Ryan sprawled across the doorway. He reached down to touch her and um, by her stiffness knew she was dead. Aww. He entered the master bedroom and called out to Josh. When Josh looked at him, Hughes asked him what happened, but Josh could could only mumble. He told Josh just to lie there. Hughes checked on his son, little Christopher, and the Ryans for signs of life and found instead massive face and head wounds.
0: Aww.
1: Rigor mortis had set in. Hughes tried to call 911 for the Ryans, but both phones were out of order. He raced to a neighbor's house and asked Bob Howie to call the police and request an ambulance for Josh. Hughes, recalling that he was somewhat in a state of shock, went home to tell his wife what he had seen while Howie went to the Ryans to wait for with josh until help could arrive so the, the police the firemen paramedics mm. all rush to the house there's four to five paramedics working on josh they a- they airlift him to loma linda hospital barely alive josh is barely breathing with mm. a blood pressure count of zero over zero so josh ends up surviving but was unable to speak and only able to communicate through writing and touch so josh was able to communicate with a detective from the san bernardino county sheriff's office and the detective was really sweet if you see the 40 hours Mm -hmm. documentary which we will leave that link in our notes the detective goes on to state you know i wanted to make sure that he was comfortable with me i know that he was really in a state of shock he went through a lot of trauma so I asked him questions about baseball and school and when he was finally ready to answer questions the detective lets Josh know to squeeze his hand to state um an answer for yes so the detective asks Josh if he remembers seeing anyone in the house aside from his family that Mm. night Josh squeezes his hand the detective asks him all right do you remember the number of men I'm going to count the number and you're going to squeeze my hand one no squeeze Two, no squeeze, three. Josh squeezes his hand at three. So by the end of the questioning, it turns out that Josh had seen three white or Hispanic attackers in the house that night. But the biggest question is, what did Josh see the night of the murders? And by the time Josh gained his strength to speak, he was able to tell the hospital staff and detectives what he saw that night. And according to Lorna Forbes, the hospital psychologist, she recorded Josh's statement stating that Josh remember hearing his mom crying, followed by Chris's pleas for help. Mm. Josh then states that he remembers seeing three white or Hispanic men. Wow. Now, this is the coroner's report, and this gets a little graphic too, guys. Mm -hmm. So, the coroner initially determined that there had been several assailants using several types of weapons, a hatchet, an ice pick, or screwdriver, and either one or two hunting knives to stab and slash the murder victims a total of 144 times. Mm -hmm. Mind you, they also collected evidence that stated that it took the murderers to commit this crime within five to 10 minutes. Mm. Doug Ryan had suffered 37 inflicted wounds to the head, the face, the neck, the abdomen, chest, forearms, and legs. Peggy Ryan suffered 33 inflicted wounds to the head, face, neck, abs, chest, forearms, and legs. Jessica Ryan suffered the worst out of them all with 46 mm. inflicted wounds to the head, the face, the neck, ab, Chest, forearms, legs, and she had one of her fingers nearly decapitated. But the coroner said that she really did put up a good fight. Mm. Christopher Hughes had suffered 25 inflicted wounds to the head, the face, the neck, the abs, the chest, and the hands. And the reason why he had a lot of trauma to the hands is because he was trying to shield himself from the attack. Now, this is where we go into motives, evidence, and suspects, but whom or who would commit such a terrible act of violence and why? Mm. So there was one theory, and according to the police, it was possibly a robbery gone wrong, but nothing inside the house was missing. You see, the Ryans kept weapons inside their home. They were untouched. There was also cash and jewelry that was laid out in Mm. certain areas of the house, They were untouched. Even Peggy's purse that was sitting in the living room was untouched. The only thing that was missing was the family station wagon. And while Josh was recovering in the ER, the sheriff deputies Mm. and detectives were working around the clock in and around the property. There were several signs, including Josh's personal account, pointed to three uh, white or Hispanic attackers. And it turned out that a huge piece of evidence turned up, which was a clump of blonde Mm. or brown hairs that were found in jessica's hand as if it was torn off in a struggle so keep that big chunk of evidence highlighted because you wouldn't Mm -hmm. believe what they don't do with this piece of evidence Mm -hmm. the police end up finding footprints in and around the house a hatchet was soon located not far from the ryan's house but the side of, of an adjacent road leading away from the ryan's property Testing on the hatchet is botched, rendering all forensic evidence useless. So this is the beginning of the fuckery of the evidence. Yes. Now, on the night of the murders, two witnesses did see three white men driving a station wagon down the dead-end road away from the house of the Ryans. The family station wagon was stolen that, ni- that night, so keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Shortly after midnight, the night of the murders, three young white men entered a bar and grill about a mile away from the Ryan's home, and numerous bar workers and patrons observed them to be extremely drunk or spaced out on drugs. Mm. And when two of the men approached three young, attractive women, one of the women told him he had um, blood spatter all over him, and he had blood all over his face and T-shirt. She noticed that the other man had on coveralls that were covered in blood, as well as his shoes were covered in blood, to the point when when he walks, you can hear the...
2: Jesus Christ. The
1: blood, you know, just like kind of dripping from his shoes, which was really disgusting.
2: Right, and no one like thought that was weird? Okay.
1: I know. It's like the women are like, you smell like blood. You smell like human blood like what the fuck yeah but keep that big chunk Mm. of evidence highlighted too the day after the murders were discovered a woman driver spotted a bloody blue t-shirt on the side of the road across from the bar and grill and a sheriff's deputy picked it up the next day a bloody tan t-shirt was found on the other side of the road up from the bar and grill and the tan t-shirt was a Fruit of the loom, size medium, with a pocket in the front. The presence of the two bloody t shirts strongly indicated that at least two assailants Mm. were involved in the attack at the Ryan's home, and they were very likely the men seen at the bar with blood splatter on their clothing. Four days after the murders, another woman turned into the sheriff's office bloody coveralls her boyfriend, a convicted murderer, had left on the floor of her closet. Hours after the Ryans and Christopher Hughes were murdered, the woman, Diane Roper, told the deputy who bagged the coveralls that she had other information that implicated her boyfriend, Eugene Lee Furrow, keep that name forever highlighted in the Chino Hills murders. Mm -hmm. But she wanted to speak with the homicide detectives. She would have told them that Furrow's hatchet was also missing Mm -hmm. and that he no longer had on the tan T-shirt he wore the Saturday of the murders. So she knew it was a fruit of the loom, size medium, with a pocket on the front. And she knew this, and she literally had the receipts because she had recently purchased it for him at a Kmart. Oh, no now roper's no. boyfriend <laughs> i mean it's just you know it's just adding up and you're thinking they're collecting this evidence no they're not collecting any- anything right. at all so here's the things roper's boyfriend was one of the mo- one of the men that was seen that night at the bar with the bloody clothes jesus christ so eugene lee furrow who is a convicted killer He killed a woman by the name of Mary Sue Kitts in 1974 Mm -hmm. in Fresno, California. I looked into this case. Furrow was hired by Clarence Ray Allen. So if you're living in the 70s in Fresno, California, this is a big name because this guy was a huge criminal Mm -hmm. and mafioso who was responsible for many deaths in the 70s in Fresno, California. Jesus. So he wanted Mary killed and he hires Furrow to kill her. Burrow strangles her to death and wraps her body up in plastic, weighted with stones, and dumped her body into the Fran Kern Canal. Mm. He pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of second-degree murder. And um, here's a little side note. He loved bragging about it to his wife-slash-girlfriend, Diane Roper, and his motorcycle gang. Now, I'm just throwing this out there. Um, the gang that he quite possibly could have belonged to may have been the Hell's Angels because they were big in California, mm-hmm. especially during the 80s. Yes. And they were a motorcycle gang that consisted of convicts. <sighs> yeah. So this was a great statement that I also picked up on the Generation Y podcast and they quoted this qu- claim. Hey. Hello. They quoted this claim from the book Scapegoat by James Patrick O'Connor. So there was a rumor that was going around that the leader of the motorcycle gang had a bad deal with Peggy. And that was the thing in the 48 Hours documentary. They had old news footage of locals saying that they didn't believe that the man that they ended up convicting the murders mm. of the Ryans um, They said that there's rumors going around that somebody else did it. Mm -hmm. Now, quite possibly, this bad deal involved the horses, and that's a huge light bulb. A man by the name of Kuhn, who was an acquaintance of Lee Furrow, mentioned that he traveled with Lee and another man to the house to collect a debt that was in connection with the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, God. Kuhn, Furrow, and the other man travel to the house. Kuhn is the lookout. Furrow and the other man, in question, walk straight into the house through the front door because this was the 80s, and we were still sleeping with our doors and windows unlocked. The men were in there for 10 to 15 minutes. When they entered the home, Kuhn mentions that they're wearing gloves and carrying weapons, and one of the weapons resembles a hatchet. When they made their way outside, uh, Kuhn finally... Um, is greeted by Furrow and Furrow tells him that the debt was officially collected. They ended up driving off in a station wagon that was parked at the residence. Mm. They didn't have to break into the car because this was the eighties again. And they kept the keys in the car. Dumb. Exactly. Don't do that. Don't do that. So these are a lot of things that make you go, Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is still not taken into evidence or yes. t- written as a statement, just an FYI. So what about the stolen station wagon? The car is found a week later in long beach. And it just so happens that the car was left close to the residence of Furrow's stepmother's house, Barbara Picaro's, who, by the way, was also involved in the Mary Kitts uh, murder plot in the seventies, just slipping that little detail in. So second, there were three areas of blood found in the vehicle on the driver's seat, the passenger seat, and the left back seat. They also do not find any fingerprints in and around the car, and this is the first stint of the investigation of the station wagon. Mm. But none of this ultimately mattered to the sheriff's office after deputies made what they thought was a breakthrough discovery. A 25-year-old black man convicted a burglary had escaped from a minimum security Chino prison by walking through a fence, and he had been holed up for two days in an empty house just 125 yards away from the Ryan's home. So who is this man, Bryce? You have yes. not only the receipts, but you have like a freaking fat ledger book.
2: Yes. Well, yeah. let's just start with who he was because everything else is a little bit, Marred by my opinion. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, so Kevin Cooper uh, is the man you are speaking of, the man of the hour, mm-hmm. and he was arrested and he had actually been convicted in Pennsylvania of several burglary charges and had been accused of a kidnapping and a rape of a minor. Oh wow. Mm -hmm. So, let me start by saying I'm not really super interested in like convincing anyone that he's a good person because it's irrelevant. No. no. But that's like kind of the point, in my opinion. Can't please get any higher. (laughs) (laughs) Because at the end of the day, rant one. If we don't serve justice blindly, then we can't serve it at all. Like, let's just start there. Right. That if he, as a bad person, is convicted because he's a bad person, regardless of whether or not he committed the crime that he is being accused of, in his sentencing, flash forward, there were... Uh, I'm gonna say addendums but that's not the legal word and I can't think of it now but there were stipulations that were added into his sentencing for this quadruple murder that said that he was also the person who robbed and was convicted of robberies in Pennsylvania. That was his conviction in California. So like let's just start there. Right. That to me, reeks of like, well, he's a bad person and so we're going to punish him because he's bad, not because he did this crime. And that is a slippery slope, in my opinion. Right. Because if you're just punishing people because they're bad in general, it waters down the law.
1: Because he is a product of our system. Yes. And
2: to sort of segue into the next issue is that if you start trying to convict people because they're bad, it taints the way you process their case. It taints the way you collect the evidence. It taints the way you present and defend them or Uh prosecute them. And it taints the way in which they're sentenced. And that is sort of the reason we have our legal system, is so that everyone is, in theory, innocent until proven guilty. In my opinion his case was marred by his race his proximity fine that's a pretty damning one and the fact that he's just generally not a good person mm-hmm. but two of those three things should be irrelevant when you are pursuing justice Ugh, that is just the first of many friends like buckle up here we go yes so he is convicted uh in a trial they had to move it to san diego because it was initially he was arrested in san bernardino county and they were unable to find a jury of impartial jurors and so they moved it to san diego and sort of extradited his case there to san diego county um he did plead guilty to escaping from the minimum security prison that you mentioned Mm -hmm. so you know he's quote already guilty if you will. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah, he's a convict.
2: Mm -hmm. So he is then tried and is sentenced to death. And he essentially then begins the immediate process of the appeals and the entirety of the Supreme Court system up through the ninth. Circuit denies all of his appeals essentially of course. Yes, and so mm, so many little things about that
1: but on top of that they also caught him in Mexico because yes. he was escaping he ends up meeting a couple they befriend him and Bring him on their boat. So he sails to Mexico, but then you know, he's still a convict and mm-hmm. he's a criminal. So um, he meets a girl And he tries to rape her and threaten her with a weapon, Mm -hmm. beats her. And when they catch him, when they finally catch him in Mexico, he tries escaping again. So he tries to swim in the water and he throws the knife, the weapon that he used Mm -hmm. to threaten this one girl into the water. So it's already looking bad for him.
2: Right. It's already
1: looking really, really bad for him.
2: Which again goes back to like, yes, that makes him look very guilty. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. Like, you have to convict based on evidence.
1: In other words, a fair trial. Right. You know, just a fair trial.
2: Right. Which, (laughs) like, I think... Look, we really just can't get around this. Like, at the end of the day, like, when you look at the picture of him, he looks like a very stereotypical, like, black power black man. And I think that plays so much into all of this case. Yes, he did really, really terrible things. Again, that's actually not what I'm trying to defend. Yeah. It's just that when you look at what kind of town this crime happened in, this murder.
1: Chino Hills. Look
2: at what kind of family was murdered. Yes. And then very quickly it becomes evident that like the police have their guy. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that he is this black man who killed this white family. And from that assumption, everything else in the process of evidence collection is sort of shaped by that, including, in my opinion, um, the testimony of the son who survives. Yes. So you already mentioned that he, you know, initially in the hospital is like, describing three people, that there were three assailants, excuse me. And then later, he sort of changes his story. Yes. He's unable to remember in quite as much detail. He has decided that there was only one shadow, as he called them. He doesn't remember. Which, again... Kevin Cooper is a very distinguished-looking man. Like, he's really hard to miss. He's tall. He's really lanky. He's very imposing. He has this massive, like, afro when they arrest him. So, again, if he starts out in his initial testimony describing, like, three white or Hispanic men... Those are, like, pretty strong details. And then when he switches it, he can't remember, like, any details about the single assailant. It starts to seem like he – I mean, he was eight, right? He was eight. I was shocked when you were talking that he had the wherewithal to grab his own throat. Like, an eight-year-old was able to think that way. Like, eight's very young. So – if you've seen the show on Netflix that talks about this, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Making of a Murder. Um, that's the other one I was going to bring yeah. up, but there is one as well that talks about the questioning process. Oh, yeah. And all the tactics that they use to break a potential suspect down.
1: It's kind of called test mm. <laughs> I know there's another mm-hmm. term for it, but um, just an FYI, the former DA at the time, mm-hmm. Dennis Codmeyer, Sorry, guys, if I sound nasally, I'm just getting over a cold wholeheartedly believe that Cooper committed these murders mm-hmm. and he worked very closely with Josh. So yes. after Josh made the three statements, three of them to the detective, the first man to question him, um, from San Bernardino, Police, mm-hmm. And then to the psychologist and then to other staff members, it was three. And then mm-hmm. of course, like you said, after speaking and working with Codmire, his story changed.
2: And if you see any of these tapes, it's a lot of, you know, obviously the son is not on trial. But no. it is a lot of badgering type questioning. Are you sure? Are you sure? Wasn't it this? Very leading, very like pointed line of questioning. And he's he's now 12, I think, at that point. Yeah. Um, again, like, it's so young. And you're not fully aware, and you're a victim, and your beautiful, sweet grandmother, who I'm just so obsessed with, Dr. Mary.
1: I know. If you if you watch the 48-hour documentary, this documentary was shot in 2004, so it's a little outdated, but it goes into great depth. Yes. And they do a lot of um, investigating into the evidence. They ask a lot of questions um, to mm-hmm. the people that witnessed the men at the bar. They even interview Diane Roper and the interview Kodmire and all the detectives that were involved.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is a lot of my opinion mixed in with like some facts, but (laughs) it's because uh, as we move forward, talking about possible manipulation, possible other suspects, it just is all tainted by how sure the sheriff's department was that it was this lone black killer Mm -hmm. and you it's sort of inescapable unfortunately and like that sort of voracious like this is our guy and thus evidence that doesn't support that testimony that doesn't support that is sort of burnt away in the fire of their scrutiny and or misuse of evidence so again this is very political. You brought up how to make a murder. Yes. That is such a perfect example of just like once it's decided before a trial, before a jury has a chance to hear the evidence, in the initial process of the evidence collection, so much can be fucked up. Because if the person who's collecting the evidence decides that it fits with the case, that's it. And if they decide that it doesn't, as we'll see, then god knows what could happen to it so speaking of
1: speaking of let's talk
2: about some of those things
1: let's talk about the evidence well
2: first before we do that um so he i think i did briefly mention it Uh, a jury did convict kevin cooper of four counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted murder with the intention of uh inflicting bodily injury and they sentenced and he was sentenced to the death penalty which california still has don't worry, that one's coming. That one's <laughs> At real At the long. time, yeah, they yeah. still have it. There's going to be a part two just for that. <laughs> um, So there was, uh, and then as I mentioned, the stipulation was entered that Kevin Cooper was the man who abducted the minor on October 8th of 1982 from the Heath residence, kidnapped her, and later raped her in Frock Park. Again, not a good person. Not the point. I feel like I can't say that enough. Right. Carry on. Um... <laughs> So let's go through the very long list of uh, discrepancies and misuse and possible manipulation of, of the evidence in this case. Because I think it sort of it's
1: paints really, a fuller picture. It's really messed up.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the first one uh, we talked about, Josh Ryan's testimony, uh, indicated uh, to his social worker that there were three or four white men com- uh, who were attacking his family and... Um, the later it was, uh, what's the word? Dissent in a dissenting opinion. One of the judges, uh-huh. um, said that deputies misrepresented his recollections and gradually shaped his testimony so that it was consistent with the prosecution's theory that there was only one killer,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which we sort of just talked about. Um, In 2010, uh, in a lecture at Gonzaga University, Judge uh, Quackenbush, he wrote that the sheriff's department was called, as you mentioned, by Diana Roper, Uh who was the then girlfriend of Lee Furrow. She testified that he came home on June 4th, which was the day after, or the morning.
1: In the morning of. It was really, really early. Very
2: early in the morning. Yeah. Um, and he had changed out of his overalls left on the floor of the closet. And that when she went uh, and that he wasn't wearing the shirt that she had seen him leave in, which she claimed was a tan T-shirt with a pocket, mm-hmm. which was, as you mentioned, fruit of the loom. Fruit of size the loom.
1: medium. And they make a statement, too, that uh, Kevin Cooper does not wear a size medium. He's a big man. He was yes. a large.
2: And she said he had come home without it. And that later, when she went to clean up the overalls that they were covered in blood, she called the sheriff's department and submitted an affidavit testifying that they were uh, Pharaoh's coveralls and that he was missing his shirt. And then that was sort of the end of it. They never tested the overalls for blood. Uh, the sheriff's department turned them over to never turned them over to Cooper or to his lawyers. and they were disposed of. Uh, mysteriously quote, <laughs> quote, 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 oh, quote, on the day of Cooper's arraignment.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, and I quote from the 48 Hours episode, they threw them away.
2: They threw them away. They threw them away. And the way in which they were thrown away contradicted the sheriff department's testimony in the actual trial. Uh, there was phone logs that showed that the department, uh, excuse me, that the sheriff's department did make attempts to give the coveralls to the lead investigator, which they claimed that they never had. Um, And then later, a supervisor admitted under oath that he had signed off on the throwing away of the overalls, which contradicted one of the deputy's testimonies that he decided on his own that they weren't important, which either way is really shitty, but fine. Also, if you take the time to watch the documentary, which I think you should, it's actually really good. Yes. Um, when she starts questioning him, and he's like, "Well, oh I don't know. God. I can't be bothered with that. that. Like, it's vague. I don't recollect. I don't recollect." And she's just like, "But it happened in your department. Isn't that departmental oh negligence?" God. And he's yes. like, "This is over." And he like gets up and storms away. I'm like, "You, you know what you did is wrong. I'm sorry. Like, if he someone didn't want
1: to admit it, if, if someone was the confronts
2: problem. me with something that's untrue, believe that I will be dying on that sword defending myself. <laughs> but if they confront me with something that..." is true and i don't want to admit it yeah i'm gonna get out of that situation i'm gonna exactly. like and like as a died in the wool wasp like game recognized game he was trying to get out of that situation because he knows that what he let happen in his department was wrong right oh god okay
1: no it's so true because if you watch if you see the the interview like she's like really reading him with these questions like what happened to the coveralls and she's confused she's like but you were presented these coveralls that were covered in blood and you had them in your hand and you threw them away and then he gets up he's like i don't have to uh, you know i am not like, that's
2: enough of that, that's enough of that. he like, takes okay. off his
1: mic i'm like come yeah. on dude
2: and she didn't even accuse him of anything no, she, like, was, just she like, was like confused and genuinely trying to ask yeah a question. She was <laughs> like god help him if she had actually accused him of something like he would have melted
0: uh-huh.
2: <laughs> fine. Um, later, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Roper provided an affidavit under oath, and she stated that the t-shirt found beside the road was the t-shirt of her then boyfriend Lee Farrow. Furrow, excuse me, as you mentioned, is a fruit of the loom t-shirt with a breast pocket. Um, she was the one who had purchased it for him was right. her reasoning. Um, again, she had
1: the receipts, and I re- like literally, she had the receipts.
2: Paper, paper so retro.
1: Like literal paper mm-hmm. trail.
2: Um, she also claimed in the same affidavit, affidavit, I cannot speak. Affidavit. It's really hard to say legal terms. <laughs> um, that the bloody hatchet found beside was uh, the hatchet that was missing from her garage, like. Mm-hmm bitch knows where her tools are like let's just say okay mm-hmm. anyway never right um so you already mentioned there was a lot of uh insinuation as well that Lee Ferro was an employee of Clarence Ray Allen who had is actually was also executed in 2006 by the state of California which
1: is so crazy mm-hmm. because he is put to death in 2006 2 years after Cooper was supposed to be put to death.
2: Yes, yeah, so Cooper was supposed to be put to death in February of 2004. Four. Yeah. But there's been so much pushback from sweet Dr. Mary and ironically from two of the lead investigators of his right. initial prosecution because there's enough question in their mind that they don't believe that justice is truly being served.
1: Yes, I have it right here on Jan no July 16th of 2014, federal judge Corbach J. Mm-hmm. Carney of the US District Court ruled that California's death penalty system is unconstitutional because it is arbitrary and plagued with delay. Mm-hmm. The state was not ex- no the state has not executed a prisoner since 2006 and um, the last one that you mentioned was on January 17th of two- 2006.
2: Mm-hmm. And he was convicted of essentially uh, conspiring from prison in the murder of Sue Kitts, and Jay Furrow was the one who killed her. Oh, yeah. And was uh, this... Uh, sorry, uh, Clarence Ray Allen uh, was the one who had the disagreement with the Ryans over a horse purchased from them. So, like, um. if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck and smells like a duck and tastes like a duck, it's probably a duck. A little, yeah. Like, he already did this once. But, like, okay, yeah. fine. You know, again.
1: If you guys wild Google. Wild speculation. If you guys Google Clarence Ray Allen and read what he did in 1974, and it wasn't just towards, like, Mary Sue Kitts. He mm-hmm. had a lot of people killed, not just her. And I know that there was a supermarket massacre that occurred too that involved Kit's murder right. and then there was the murder of four innocent bystanders that were in like at the wrong place at the wrong time.
2: Literally, yes. Yeah. So uh Furrow was essentially released on truncated charges for his cooperation in his testimony in the <laughs> and for admitting the murder. And so he essentially was released a year earlier to the Chino massacre. Um, and had already <laughs> been convicted for very nearly identical crime, just with less people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also Furrow basically, like you mentioned, bragged and admitted to the kid's murder and it's extreme violence against her so like
1: about it so it makes you wonder like this guy low-key goes into a bar with coveralls covered in blood and it's some way like this subconscious statement like Mm -hmm. look what i did you know gee that's not that doesn't smell like animal
2: blood yeah and right like realistically this is me just like listing off a litany of things because there are so many pieces that are just like that should be looked into at the very least. Like, hey, why is this discrepancy happening?
1: Well, there's a lot of things that were yes. discounted, yes. and it just makes you scratch your head several several times.
2: Yes. So, uh, according to police records, the second blue T-shirt that you mentioned, um, which was recovered essentially across the street from the brown T-shirt, yes, was more or less discounted. Uh, we can look that it was, if it had been found by a civilian, um, that the sh- the record would have had to address it. Right. But because there's just, like, the one shirt in reference, we can, like, surmise, essentially. So this is, like, a little tenuous, but, like, we can surmise that it's only referring to one shirt because otherwise, legally, they have to report that there are two shirts. Yes. So, like, whether or not that's, like, willful refusal to admit evidence it certainly is sketchy at the very least because there were two t-shirts found within feet of each other
1: exactly and they keep the tan shirt but they don't test
2: it right the tan shirt is a whole that's a
1: whole another episode Uh, (laughs) and i think the blue shirt was like thrown away as well or they it went missing
2: well and uh judge he accepted the state's claim in essence that there was only one shirt and has since blocked the defense from ever pursuing that matter so like again the the flip side of this coin of like my liberal righteous indignation is that this all does cost money and i get that sort of mindset of like well we have enough evidence to convict him quote unquote um so these other tests are a waste of taxpayers money. Yes. My flaming liberal counter to that <laughs> is like stop spending my money on like war. And spend it on the pursuit of justice. So, like, it's sort of a merry-go-round of, like, where does money go and, like, what deserves to be pursued in the case of justice and what doesn't. Exactly. Just the fact that a judge can be like, no, you can't pursue that anymore makes me feel a little icky inside. Yeah. Because, like, what if on the front of the blue shirt written in DNA is the answer to this murder mystery? We don't know. Yeah, probably not realistically. I'm not stupid. Mm-hmm. But we don't know because now we don't get to know because it's not be every possible option. And the thing that I can't escape from this is that, like, what if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're convicted of a crime that you genuinely didn't commit and there's enough circumstantial evidence that makes you look guilty? Yeah, you shouldn't have been there. Right. And now you're facing the death penalty,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and people or persons are conspiring or willfully ignoring things that could help you not die.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Should Kevin Cooper be convicted of something? Yes, agreed. Should he be convicted and the only person to pay for the deaths of this family i don't know that i can realistically say that no so it's just like again he's a bad person that's not what we're defending but at the end of the day if this were me and they were like well you can't pursue that it would be so devastating it's like yeah but what if there's evidence that could exonerate you.
1: Exactly. They were just looking at evidence that proved him. Mm. So there was even evidence of a shoe print outside, several of them outside the house that matched a prison issue pro-catch shoe that is issued to Mm -hmm. men at the Chino Hills facility. Yes. And they proved that to be of Cooper as well. They said that there is a connection, um, of the hatchet that they believe it came from the house that he was cooped up in, mm-hmm. the Lisa's house. Mm-hmm. So they connect that to that. And then they find a splotch of blood on a paint chip mm-hmm. in the in the Ryan's house that's called, um, I believe it's I think it's 841 mm-hmm. drop of blood. And then they do the second a second investigation mm. of the station wagon. And then they find two, oh, all of a sudden, oh, wait, wait, we missed the two cigarette butts in the station wagon. Yeah, so
2: there's no fingerprints found, which to me means, like, (laughs) Like, you searched it mm, pretty aggressively. Exactly. And yet you don't collect what would have literal mounds of DNA on it from the saliva and the fingers. And then all of a sudden they appear and he has a fingerprint in the closet where uh jake ryan nope that's the protagonist <laughs> from 16 candles
1: <laughs> jake ryan does he yeah. know that you exist i oh, <laughs> love it jake I, could ryan, quote that
2: I could quote it he could get it like let's just call spade a spade yes he can he any can
1: day any time
2: bless um, the Way to My Heart. If anyone ever puts a birthday cake on a table after they've thrown a life-ruining party at their parents' house for me, anyway, they want it.
1: Anyone who drives a Porsche Carrera, I'm all for it. So oh,
2: there we go. <laughs> anyway, not him. Uh, I don't even know what my point was. It's Josh Ryan. Josh Ryan. Still don't know what my point was. Uh, moving on. I got distracted by 16 candles. <laughs> Again. Ugh. Um oh, uh, also later it was uh, proven that the shoes were falsely identified and that it was a different brand than what was issued from the prison. They just had a similar tread. Uh, oh, Kevin Cooper, his fingerprint was found in the closet. That was what I was gonna say. And then the deputy's fingerprint was also found, but that it predated the fingerprint. That was found from Kevin Cooper. So that does seem like pretty suspicious. Right. Um, it was like a day prior, and then like DNA or whatever the test they used showed that like Kevin Cooper's was like a day after that fingerprint. So that seems pretty tampery. Um, no cigarette butts were found. You mentioned that. The ones that they have uh, have never been tested, which is super annoying to me. Um, and then let's talk about some hair. Blonde hairs... <sighs> this were, really mm,
1: pissed me off. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so, uh, blondish brown hairs were found clutched in the hands of Jessica Ryan, yes. which there's photos I would highly recommend not looking at them. They're very traumatic. Um, They're
1: extremely post-mortem. Yes.
2: Um, they, most of the hairs have never been tested, and when the test was ordered on them, she limited the judge limited the testing... That were found to not have a certain type of DNA, essentially. So, again, if you see the picture of Kevin Cooper, he has a very large afro at the time of his arrest. Exactly. The hair in Jessica Ryan's hands are very straight, very wispy, very blondish brown. Mm -hmm. Whatever that means. At the very least, it means, in my opinion, that there was someone else involved, someone else attacking them.
1: Exactly. And
2: we just don't know because that hair wasn't tested.
1: It wasn't tested because California officials believe they had the killer Kevin Cooper. Yes. And according to the 48 Hours interview, Josh Ryan goes for the record he states the hair needs to be tested yes her hand is clenched fighting for her life with the hair in it so i want to know and i need to know how come this hair sample hasn't been tested yes and brown also did not jerry brown also did not authorize the dna testing of the victim's finger nail scrapings or mm. items that could prove cooper was framed including a vial of cooper's blood drawn when he was arrested and it contains the blood preservative of EDTA as expected and um, also the blood of at least another unknown person so there's also tampering with that blood as well
2: and the thing that's so crazy about all of that is that this is a very like strange situation of the friend of my or the enemy of my enemy is my friend and so you have this sort of odd coalition of like Kevin Cooper and the victim and his grandmother and the initial prosecutors working pro bono to almost not even prove his innocence, but just to actually seek justice. And they're being fought by the state of California. And it's so odd and disappointing and like weirdly inspiring all at the same time. Because they're just like... We just need to know whichever way.
1: So we have like the relatives of the deceased. You have Mary And then I find out that Paul Ingalls, mm-hmm. who was the man to catch Cooper, mm-hmm. is working for the grandmother yes. pro bono. And then um, Peggy's sister steps forward and says, no, Cooper needs a fair trial.
2: Yes. So and again, they all I don't think. They're, they're not really on his side in the sense that they're like, he should be free. No. But I think there's a sense of like justice isn't being served and our loved ones deserve better than that. Yes. And like this horrible human deserves better than that.
1: He does. He really does. And I will list this other piece of source, but the New York Times... Mm has a podcast called The Tribute. And it's hosted by uh, Michael, I think it's Barbaros. And they did a episode in May of 2018. I'll put it in our show notes, but listen to it. Mm. It's a 30-minute episode. And the reason why he did this episode was as a counter to um, Nicholas Kristoff's article, his opinion piece in The New York Times, where he labeled it as was kevin cooper framed Mm -hmm. and the reason why he wrote that piece is because he was very shocked that the state of california which is a liberal state Mm
0: -hmm. turned
1: their back on kevin cooper and one particular individual aside from arnold schwarzenegger and jerry brown but Camilla Harris, mm-hmm. who back in the early 2000s, who was the attorney general, yes. turned her back. Her in her office turned her back on the clemency that yes. Cooper submitted. And it's so funny because in the episode, Nicholas Kristoff says, after I wrote that piece, she got a lot of fire. And she ends up calling him to apologize. Calling who? Nicholas Kristoff, the editor. But not. But not, you know, Kevin Cooper, which is very
2: that's a sticky sticky one
1: very sticky yeah it was it's it's very sticky and I highly recommend that you listen to this episode even if you're in opposition of our opinions but they (laughs) I'm sure yes yeah I mean there are people that really 100% believe that he did it yes but they go in and they question him Mm -hmm. they do a very intensive interview with Kevin Cooper from San Quentin and he states for the record look i know i'm not a i'm not a good person i'm not saying i'm a saint but i deserve a fair trial
2: the one thing that he said that really struck me was i'm i don't you don't believe me i don't want you to believe me i want you to believe the evidence and that is a very jarring that statement that is a very
1: jarring statement yeah
2: because like that is what it should always be if we start prosecuting and there are many many instances of this where if the witness the defendant the whomever we saw in the oj case if the lawyers themselves are perceived a certain way it mars the justice in theory it would just be presentation of the facts and then the jury would be deciding but that's very rarely how it actually shakes out yeah um so I I've, I've found that to be a very like powerful statement of like, no, she's like, well, why should people trust you? And he says, don't trust me. That's not what I'm asking. And for. I believe
1: him. If you listen to this episode, he is like, mm-hmm. just straightforward mm-hmm. and brutal and just brutally honest. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we don't believe that he's a good person. And he admits that he's like, I fucked up a lot of people. I've done some really fucking horrible things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not wanting to be praised as being a good person. I've been a part of the system since I was seven Mm -hmm. and I know the system very well. And I know for a fact that I will still have a date with death, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really, really sad. He also states people want me executed, um, Because they say the families need closure, but closure is not justice. Truth is justice. Mm -hmm. And he states that in the episode, which was so powerful to Mm me.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's interesting because on his way out, Jerry Brown, uh, in December of 2018, so literal months ago, uh, ordered new DNA testing in the Cooper case. But... And here's here's another <laughs> twist. Here's the big one that I've been sitting on because you're about to get like just a real yeah I know coastal elite rant. So like I really <laughs> am sorry. Like I'm a nice person. I promise. Like, <laughs> if we ever have drinks, friends know that I won't like bombard you with this. But they will
1: immediately get on their computers yeah. and their phones. Like, hey Bryce, you want to go have a drink? I know. No, I feel <laughs> like I'm just
2: gonna need to, like write everyone like a written a legible letter that's like, I'm really sorry, like to disappoint you. <laughs> um I am very against the death penalty. And it's funny that we're doing this episode this week because recently there have been like several instances that have like challenged whether or not I truly believe that. Obviously the Ted Bundy documentary on Netflix was one of them. If yeah. you haven't watched them, I would highly recommend them. It's a little bit of a glorification of a crazy person, but I think there's a lot of interesting psychology and evidence and storytelling. It's very well done. It is. But I did, I found myself at the end of that really relishing in his death. And like, yeah, this person does deserve it. He's broken and he has hurt people. But at the end of the day, like, I really don't think we should be killing people who aren't of sound mind. So, again, I hear your pushback through the mic, like I really do understand, but I think this is a similar case, and California just voted recently in our midterm elections that we would actually be expediting the death penalty process, which I could not be more opposed to, and so for anyone who doesn't keep up with California elections, um, the there was essentially two propositions on the ballot. And a vote for one was, and I'm very much oversimplifying, so if you really do care, you can look it up. Um, It's kind of convoluted. But if you voted for one, it was to abolish the death penalty in California. And if you voted for the other, it superseded, and it was to expedite the process so that death row inmates were not languishing away for decades on death row it would expedite the time between their conviction and their actual execution date and the problem that i have with that is that a i don't think anyone should be put to death there are different ways that they can pay their debt to society uh this is a really good example of one uh let's assume that kevin cooper is innocent of these murders he's been in prison for 60 Wait, did I just do the math right? How long has he been in prison? He was imprisoned in 80.60. No, he's 61. He is 61. Sorry, I was like, wait, I'm saying wrong numbers. He's uh,
1: been in prison for 32, 30. Yeah, yeah, 34 years now.
2: So, in theory, if he were innocent of these crimes, that is 34 years of prison that he has paid, that he cannot get back, that he doesn't deserve for this crime. Again, not him, the person, this crime only. Exactly. So that's a lot of ifs in that sentence. But um, the problem now is that in future cases that could have similar issues, we are not done with racism in this country. We are not done with obstruction of justice in this country. There are much more likely, in my opinion, to be people who are on death row who will be sentenced and executed without the – opportunity for justice to prevail, and I find that to be incredibly terrifying. Um, Again, I know that I'm pretty left on this issue that I don't think anyone should be executed. Um, In this case in particular, it gets pretty sticky.
1: I just remember when we were talking with Cameron Britton, Mm. he made a good point. He said that, you know, what we all have in common for people that are for and against it is compassion. Yes. Compassion because... We want to avenge the people that were murdered by these individuals. Yes. And we want closure, but also people want fairness at Mm -hmm. the same time.
2: Yes. And I would even take it a step further, unfortunately, that sometimes fairness and justice are not linked, unfortunately.
1: No, I agree. I will agree. Yeah,
2: and, And again, it's such a placating statement, but it doesn't bring your loved ones back.
1: No, it doesn't. And that's, like, that's something that even Cooper, like I just said, like Cooper said, like, they want me to admit it because families need closure. But he's like, that's not the point. Mm -hmm. I just want a fair trial. Yes. And it's so true. And it's just jarring, of course, to think that everything was ignored. Yes. That the evidence was discarded. Mm -hmm. And I even read that at one point... One of the sheriff deputies during that time, there are a couple of crooked sheriff deputies that were working for San Bernardino. One of them was um, fired for stealing guns from the mm-hmm. from you know their facility, mm-hmm. and another one was fired for tampering with evidence.
2: Good grief! Um, let's lightly transition into what you think happened.
1: What I think happened is. It, it goes further and it goes deeper. I really don't believe that Cooper committed these crimes. I just think that he was there at the wrong place at the wrong time. And it just so happened to be 125 yards away from where the murders were committed.
2: Do you think he was involved in any way?
1: I believe that maybe, you know, he could have been involved as a lookout and someone that they could pin this on easily with his background. Or quite mm-hmm. possibly another theory of mine is maybe he was wandering around their house post slaying because he noticed that the vehicle was mm-hmm. was not there. And he thought great opportunity to rob a house, goes inside and sees the post and got freaked out. When I think about this, I just think that there's something so much deeper that we don't mm. know. And I feel like there's this connection with Furrow and Clarence Allen. Yes. Because the difference between Cooper and Furrow is this, Furrow bragged about his crimes where Cooper didn't brag, he admitted mm. to them.
2: Yes, that's a very good point.
1: And I went on a different research route with this case, and I researched the Aryan Brotherhood in the mm. Inland Empire, and they have a huge chapter in the Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. And as of the late 80s in Chino Hills, um, there was a rise in the Hispanic and Asian community moving there. Mm-hmm. And since then, up until now, there's been a huge spike in hate crimes Mm -hmm. in Chino Hills all the way up to 2019.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: And yeah, I mean, you could research this too, but there's also, you know, a gang known as like, what is it, the Peckerwood Gangs, Mm. which is also white power gangs. I just feel like there's a lot of credible evidence that could have brought other people to the
2: light Mm. besides Cooper. Agreed, Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you ever read, there's a book by Gillian Flynn uh, who wrote Gone Girl and Sharp Objects. And this one was made into a movie with Charlize Theron called Dark Places.
1: Yes, the I movie, saw that.
2: The movie's not my favorite, but um, I liked the book very much. I like all of Gillian Flynn's work, actually. Um, and it, it's it's hauntingly similar to this. Um, it's about a mass murder, and there's a lone daughter who survives. Yes. Um, and,
1: and the ending is pretty twisted.
2: Yeah, like I guess minor spoiler alert. I don't know. I think if something's been out for like more than a year, it's yeah. like your own fault. Just go for it. Yeah. But um, essentially, the there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more satanic panic in that book than I think is in this case. Although there are some light like, twinges of it that people kind of talk about, like rit- ritualistic murders, and if that was this and. In the book, it's very heavily thought that they were ritualistically murdered, this family. And as the woman who survived is going through the evidence, it kind of, you know, omnisciently we find out that it's sort of a, a weird amalgam of random happenstance that creates this scenario, and that instead of one murderer who killed the whole family there was one killer who killed the mom and then there was one killer who killed one of the sisters and then a second person who had to kill and they just all happened to be in this house at the right time sort of the timeline kind of was a little bit more stretched out than Mm -hmm. like the investigators had thought and it wasn't just one person and all the ritualistic signs on the wall were like done after the fact to like make it to cover the tracks of one of the characters Um, and I think that that applies to this I think Kevin Cooper um, something along the lines of was approached by the gang and was like the getaway driver or was like involved in some tertiary way Mm -hmm. and is now being scapegoated into taking the fall for other people's actions i don't even know that's
1: what james patrick Mm -hmm. o'connor writes in his book scapegoat but i that was another theory i had too like i felt like maybe he was a lookout maybe he was the driver maybe after the murders occurred he was in the house Mm -hmm. and saw the bodies it was like fuck this i'm out i'm leaving yeah and like
2: again whether why he wouldn't just say that is a little damning. Yeah. So maybe he wasn't involved at all and wondered on it, like you said. Maybe he was there prior to the family even getting home and then left and now is being implicated. Like, there's so many options. And I do this with a lot of things. Like, most of the time, I tend to think that there's, like, a bunch of weird occurrences, Forming a perfect storm. I think the Jean Bonnet case is like that. Yes. I, I think it happens a lot where it's like enough people are keeping a little portion of the secret and together they're keeping a big secret that they aren't even aware yeah, of. Yeah,
1: because in in the long run people there's a <laughs> One person or a group of people that are not telling the truth.
2: Yes. That's so, the thing. yeah. So, again, um, it's funny. One of the things in the documentary as well says that six times out of ten, review of DNA evidence convicts the... or confirms the original uh, ruling, which I found very interesting that, like, many people pin so many of their hopes on a review of the DNA, but that the odds are against them, and that was the case. Kevin Cooper was indicted or you know his original sentencing has been thus far confirmed by the little pieces of dna evidence that have been allowed but i think that it's because again we're stuck in this tunnel vision of like he's the single killer of this family when my instinct is that were we to have full access that he would be a co- conspirator of some kind not quite that he's possibly. innocent but, no, that, but quite possibly he's not the only person quite
1: possibly yeah
2: so yeah agree shocker news flash.
1: <laughs> so there is this whole thing with the beige shirt yes. and according to the tribute that the police found that night um the one that furrow was wearing they needed to find out if the blood on the shirt belonged to him or For the test tube of his blood that they collected from Cooper when they arrested him Mm. and to see if they can find a preservative called EDTA which preserves the blood in the test tube so this was an attempt to see if that blood was planted or did he bleed in the commission of the crime and things that make you go hmm this is a big big ordeal because they find traces of EDTA And so it came from a test tube of the blood that was taken from Kevin Cooper by the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department and suggests now that evidence was tampered with. And to top it all off, Mm. they find two different blood types in the test tube that belong to two completely different people, suggesting that someone from the sheriff's department took the blood out of Cooper's test tube and then tried to cover his tracks by adding another batch of DNA into the
2: tube. So that's just like so infuriating because it's like, again, I'm not, uh, I just feel like a broken record. Like if he is guilty, then like, don't you want him to be guilty the right way? Yes. Like it's not like you want to talk about closure. You want to talk about justice. You want to talk about like a bookend. It's not satisfying if he's convicted and killed because some random person decided to manipulate a conviction. Like it, that's not satisfying. Uh-huh. It's satisfying when like the clues and the evidence line up and convict with in like with certainty. That is satisfying. Some person trying to cover their tracks and frame the like one black guy and all of Chino is not satisfying. I don't care. And I think that's why you can see in the interview that the family is not satisfied. They say, if the evidence convicts him, we will sit and watch him die. They are not mincing words about what they want. Exactly. But they want it done so that they can have certainty.
1: That's a common statement that's just been circulating between Cooper and even the family of the Ryans, of Peggy and of Doug. He did not get a fair trial. Yeah. And that's just the saddest part of it, is mm-hmm. that his trial was just cut and dry. Like, nope, you did this, and yeah. that's it. You're going to be sent to death.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's just like, you know, it's just so sad for the family, I think, as well. Yeah, that's... Like, that's they've, the... they've already lost so much, and they can't move forward. They can't. They're trapped in this weird time vortex in the 80s, where they they lost everything and they can't move past it and it's just so heartbreaking
1: it is very heartbreaking um josh still lives in california with his grandmother his grandmother in this documentary is so amazing Obsessed. i call her granny with the shotgun
2: Oh, my God. When the, she pulled that she shotgun, pulls the
1: shotgun out, she's I like, he can leave a big hole in a person.
2: <laughs> Literally, I am against, uh, like, God, I can't help it. I'm against guns. I really am for everyone but her. She can have every gun she wants. <laughs> she's so cute. She just whips it out. She's like, this is a sawed-off shotgun. I'm like, damn, girl, I you love are it. amazing. I love, she's
1: like, well, I'm his protector.
2: I love her. I watch so over him much. and
1: I protect him. I'm like, yes, Grandma. Yes, you do, Mary. Obsessed. Josh is now in his 40s and he, you know, lives a normal life. He lives on his own. He enjoys motocrossing and, and surfing. Yeah. And, I mean, he's just living each day, one day at a time. Hmm. So Kevin Cooper is still sitting in San Quentin, and. Everything's still pending for him.
2: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. That's so crazy is December. We're in February, so yeah. Who knows when they'll actually like do that test?
1: So if you guys have any thoughts, I'm sure you guys are already typing on your computer. Like, um, actually, you overlooked this. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> if you made it this far, you win a prize.
1: Exactly, a sticker. There you go. Surprise! All right, guys. Now let's go into the paranormal let's aftermath. Talk let's ghosts. talk about ghosts now because we need to step down from our soapboxes, yes. right? Right now so we have this amazing listener adrian robles thank you so much adrian for submitting your stories he is from chino hills and when he saw us um, posting about the ryan family murder he contacted us and you know offered you know his expertise of chino (laughs) hills and legends and lores so he sent us A little email with stories. We thank you so much, Adrian, for doing this. We really do appreciate you, Boo. Send me your address so we can send you a little gift, okay? Okay.
2: Hmm.
1: I know. So, Bryce, will you do the honors?
2: I will do some honors.
1: So, this is from Adrian's email. Thank you so much, Adrian, once again. And Bryce is going to read it right now.
2: So, you already know the story of the Ryan family and what was the outcome of the deaths and the son that is still alive. Yes, you do, because you just listened to 45 hours of us talk about it. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Today's stories that surround the infamous Cooper House have manifested into the already interesting energies emitted in Chino Hills. If you ask anyone in Chino Hills that live near the Ryan home, a.k.a. Cooper House, you'll be met with silence and deflection. Stories that the home is abandoned are exaggerated. A family now lives in the home that the Ryan family was murdered in. I should specify that the original home was demolished and another home has been built in this place. Layers. Exactly. Uh, The ranch community where the Ryan house is located are very protective and it is located at the end of a private road. Growing up in Chino Hills, there was no shortage of places where one could go to experience the weird, scary, and supernatural. From the green mist to Carbon Canyon Road that has its own sleepy hollow community. God, I can never go to Chino. (laughs) To the Cooper House. When I was attending high school at Alaya High School across the street, classmates of mine would talk about what we were going to do on Friday night after the football game. Many weekends, especially closer to Halloween, a bunch of us would go looking for the Cooper... Why? Why would you do that? A bunch of us would go looking for the Cooper house. There was an abandoned, burnt skeleton of a home adjacent to a, a habitable home, and many believe that this was the Cooper home. Years later, I would figure out that it was not. The Ryan house sits atop of a hill overlooking the Chino Hills Community Park. Many people have reported weird happenings in the community park. Oh uh, God no uh, A little girl giggling shadow people and whispers long after the park has been closed, and all the stadium lights have been shut off uh off English road where the Ryan home is located. Eerie feelings and sightings of a young girl by herself on the dark, unlit road have been seen oh gross mm.
1: <laughs> do you need me to hold your hand? yeah, right, I'm just gonna like tuck and roll. <laughs> On the hill adjacent
2: to the home where a hiking trail is located, similar sightings and feelings of impending doom can be encountered. Well, just don't hike. That's the answer. <laughs> um, if I learned anything from Jonathan's story, it's don't hike. <laughs> yeah, um, or Jonathan. Or Jonathan. Nowadays, people in the area close to the Ryan home are going to great lengths to forget the past and discourage visitors to the area by putting up no trespassing signs and by neighbors actively monitoring the roads leading up to the Ryan home with closed-circuit security cameras. Again, just white people. We are the worst (laughs) Bless us. Uh, the sheriff's department is across the street from the community where the Ryan family used to live, so the threat of sheriff's deputies patrolling and deterring unwelcome amateur ghost investigators from entering the area is always present. Challenge not accepted. Psych. <laughs> not. Yay.
1: Hey. Thank you, Adrian, for this. Yes, this is amazing. So when I read this, that is so funny that you wrote about the the little girl giggling and <laughs> the spirit of the girl because the coworker... Um, a mind that i um uh, that i got the story from told me the same story that in middle school and high school it was a big legend of the cooper house and one night her and her two friends go to the cooper house and at this time it's still abandoned Oof. and they break into it fyi guys if you're starting out as a ghost hunter that is not a good thing to do no. they just don't do that you could get arrested don't walk on you know private property don't yeah. trespass go figure. so according to her her two buddies go into the house she's lookout right and one guy is in the living room and kitchen while the other one is investigating the bedrooms and the bathroom and the guy that's investigating one of the bedrooms says that he heard a little girl giggle and he saw like a little shadow person like dart in the hallway No, he freaks out runs out and she said they came out screaming that they saw like something weird in that house but when i read adrian's story i'm like that's holy shit that's the same thing that yeah. she told me that's so crazy Ugh. And he brought up a couple more legends and lores in regards to Chino Hills. So you guys have a lot of crazy legends and ghost stories there, which is really crazy. So the first one that Adrian brought up was the green mist at the Aerojet space. And according to my research in Chino, there was also this legendary green mist and this was before Chino Hills was called Chino Hills and decades before incorporation the green mist was located out on an old aerojet road a narrow winding two-lane affair and it was said that the headlights of cars traveling on the on the road or the 71 expressway created an effect of a green mist against the hills
0: Whoa.
1: and as with all legends There are variations to the story, some more spooky than others. Needless to say, it was an enticing way for guys to get girls to go to a remote location with them in pursuit of the mysteries of life or the mysteries of unhooking a girl's bra with one hand. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. Come on. Now, people believe there was a satanic connection with the green mist. There always is. Rumors of seeing black-cloaked figures, animal sacrifices, while others felt it was connected to extraterrestrials. The truth is actually scientific. So, according to one former Aerojet worker in Chino Hills, he wrote in the community blog of Chino Hills that... Um, I'd forgotten the green mist. I used to work at the Aerojet Ordnance Plant up there from 77 to 1995, and though I never saw it, many of the earlier employees say that they did. As to a scientific explanation, they used to manufacture cannon ammo, and much of it contained DU, depleted uranium. In powder form, it was green, and in some manufacturing practicing... Our practices reworking the DU projectiles would be drilled into and the effect was such that a substantially green foggy mist would float into the atmosphere. I worked this for a while and saw it often. The building wherein this activity occurred was almost always open to the outside as it was hot and with no AC. It's possible that during cool nights when the well-known ground fog would present itself and with high activity of reworked manufacturing going on, that the ground fog would take on a greenish tint. Hmm. Makes sense. Although I can't say that depleted uranium in powder form wafting through the fog is any more comforting than the more fanciful explanations. Right.
2: Like one way... You are being <laughs> possessed, and the other way you are full of cancer. So, exactly, like, whatever,
1: it's congratulations. Now, there's a legend that he also brought up of Carbon Road. Like most state highways, Carbon Canyon Road, located near Brea, California, and the town. I was so excited when I heard about this Sleepy Hollow. We Sorry. have a we have a town called Sleepy Hollow, and I really want to go.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> has had its share of accidents. Now, Carbon Canyon Road is part of the California freeway system and is also known as California State Highway 142. And legend has it that souls lost on Carbon Canyon Road never left. Oh, good. Yeah. So, coasts <laughs> that haunt. Carbon Canyon Road have been described by some witnesses as bloody and decomposing. Ugh. Many drivers have seen a woman staring at the water near Brea. They describe her as a forlorn woman in a red dress. Those who have gotten a better look say she has matted hair and blood all over her arms, her face, and her clothing. Only a few people have ever seen her up close, including a couple resident psychics, and even fewer will talk about it. Mm. Now, those who have managed to speak about her face say that after you look into her empty eye sockets, you'll never be the same.
2: Oh my God.
1: Some even call her empty eyes for this very reason. It's unsure why this ghost haunts the water on this particular stretch of road, but some witnesses believe she murdered her husband's lover this is just legend, tied her to rocks and um, submerged the body into the water. When she went to leave the crime scene, her car spun out of control on one of the road's many sharp turns and her body and spirit were lost in Carbon Canyon Road as well. Now she is forced to haunt the road where she died looking over her own crime scene and never being able to find rest, inner peace, or forgiveness for her husband, his lover, herself
2: okay but like i've had a first (laughs) date too you're not special
1: (laughs) oh god yeah 50 shades of (laughs) Politics. can't imagine
2: why i'm single it's fine
1: Oh, you're gotten better with these ghost stories. Nah, right, yeah, right no. <laughs> now. <Ugh. laughs> See a little beat of sweat. Yeah, right. Just yeah. a little what? So, those are the legends and lore's and ghost stories and the paranormal aftermath connected to the Ryan House, aka the Cooper House, and to our own Chino Hills. I'm so happy that we did a little tale about Chino Hills.
2: I don't care how much I love horses, I will not be going
1: there. <laughs> I want to still like tour around there. Adrian has given us his phone number, so he's ready for a little day,
2: a play date. Y'all can go, and I'll just like Skype. <laughs> Like, do a little virtual (laughs) tour, Like, ooh, it's so beautiful. My breath is being taken. Wow. (laughs) Bryce sitting at a Starbucks close to his house. Yeah.
1: Yeah, pretty much. All right, guys. Well, we're going to take it to a close right now. We have a few spiritual bays of the week, but before we go into that, we want to say a big thank you to two very special peeps. Thank you to Christina, AKA our crusty Mouse on Instagram. Aye. I finally had the pleasure of meeting her this past weekend at Craig Owens' presentation at the Wolves Bar in downtown LA. And she gifted me a little ghost pin, and That's it was so the sweetest, most darling thing. Thank you so much, Christina. Also, thank you to Adrian Robles for taking the time Aye. to send us his hometown legends and stories of Chino Hills. And congrats to our friend Craig Owens of Bizarre Los Angeles. He had a phenomenal turnout last weekend. Actually, now that this is airing, it's actually two weeks ago. With his presentation of ghost stories of the Alexandria Hotel. And the venue got so packed that they had to add another show. So he had a 6 o'clock presentation and 8 o'clock presentation that were all booked, all Amazing. packed. And then they added a ten o'clock and that was booked. Amazing. And they were turning all of us away, so we weren't able to go inside. Wow. I know. So um congrats, Craig. Hopefully we'll get to see more of your future presentations soon so our two spiritual bays of the week we have the paranormal experience podcast Hi. leon thomas and karina are the spooky paranormal hosts and they talk about everything involved in the paranormal world if a person plays her thing Is haunted. They'll talk about it. So give them a listen. And the second one, of course, we just did an interview with them is the Edge of Reason radio show. So it's a radio show that features everything from the paranormal, scientific and pop culture worlds, as well as glitches in the matrix and cutting edge medical science. So the show is hosted by Zana, Zana Lowe and Gigi Miller. They are two crazy gals that like to get freaky and weird. And I was on their um, show two weeks ago. Bryce couldn't be a part of it due to his work schedule. I know.
2: I'm such a boring little baby <laughs> friend.
1: But we're going to make it back on their yes. radio so show soon. So, they're so um, awesome. Check them out, guys, this coming Monday because they're going to have our friend David Oman
2: yes. on the radio
1: show as a special guest. I got them connected with him and, and it's going to be a great interview. Yes. It is. Alright, guys, if you love Holly Weird Paranormal, we love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, it really helps us out a lot and it helps us become a little more visible can't get enough of Hollywood Paranormal then stalk us on Instagram and Facebook at Hollywood Paranormal and Twitter at HWP podcast Have a story that you're dying to share, no pun intended, especially legends and lures. I would like to do an episode where you guys submit your hometown legends and lores. Bryce, I know you have some from your hometown. I have some from New Orleans I love to share. and We love to hear yours. So send them on over our way. Catch up with our past episodes on Blueberry.net, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, CastBox, and Spotify. All right, guys. Till next time. Bryce, you got anything to say? Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys.